0: got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 as we stand and look at verses 16 through 20. Now we're not finished with Matthew's gospel just because we're finished with chapter 28 today. I've had a blast. We started at the beginning of fall and we have spent uh, several months now looking at Matthew's gospel. I love this gospel. I hope that Uh, not only have we gone through it, I hope that it has gone through you. Uh, But we've got a couple more weeks. We're going to go back and we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 24, 25, because the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ and the Great Commission is not the end of the story. I've got good news for you. Jesus is coming again. And what will the days be like when he returns? Jesus taught us on that. So next couple of weeks, we'll get back into chapters uh, 24 and 25 to conclude our study of Matthew's gospel. We just kind of skipped ahead for the sake of Easter and here to follow Easter with this passage we call the Great Commission. So you found your place in Matthew 28. I'm going to start reading with verse 16. It says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them, or to the place, some translations say, uh, he had appointed to meet with them. And When they saw him, they worshipped. But some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, thank you for that promise. Thank you for that job description you gave us in your word. The fact that you're always with us, working in and through us to do your will. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move our hearts to be about your business. That we wouldn't just sing, send me out, we would be willing to go. We wouldn't just sing of being overwhelmed in your presence, but truly, Lord, you would overwhelm us. Lord, we would leave this place changed for your glory today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. There's a question that men and boys will always be asked by either their mom or perhaps later in their life it will be their wife that will ask this question. And for some reason, the male and the family will typically have a difficult time answering the question. I don't know why that is because it's a simple question. It's simply four words. That's this, what are you doing? What are you doing? I don't know why that sounds like a tough question. sounds like it's an easy question. It should have an easy answer. But can you imagine a child typically answers that question? What are you doing with one word? Nothing. Especially boys, little boys. You ask a little boy what he's doing, that little boy could have mom's fine china outside making mud pies. It's clear that he's doing something. And she says, what are you doing? And he says, Nothing. That little boy could have taken a pocket knife that his dad gave him and stripped wires off of a plug-in and have one wire tied around one catch leg, one wire tied around another catch leg, be about to plug that plug into the wall, and mom say, what are you doing? And the boy says, nothing. I mean, that's just what they learned to say when they don't know what else to say. <laughs> nothing maybe it's a teenager now he doesn't say nothing when when he's asked what are you doing he typically doesn't know this guy has, has you know he, he's got seventh eighth grade ninth grade education by now maybe tenth grade maybe he's already graduated from high school he can be laying on a couch watching tv taking a nap he can be texting he can be eating what are you doing i don't know It's hard to figure out, you think, well, one day he's going to grow up, he's going to mature, he becomes a man. And and the the man's answers don't always satisfy his wife, because if he has graduated past nothing, and I don't know, his wife is convinced he still really doesn't know what he's doing whenever she has to ask that question, what are you doing? Now, his answer may be like this, well, I'm trying to fix this. But she's thinking he doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) at least in in my case probably, if I'm trying to fix something. What are you doing? Have you ever thought that perhaps God looked down from heaven or looks down from heaven? You ever think that perhaps God wants to get face to face with us in the midst of all of our activity because we are busier than we've ever been in our lives? Remember when the personal computer came out, it said it was going to end us having to keep up with all this paperwork. <laughs> and all it did was create mountains and mountains and mountains of paperwork. All these devices that make life easier. And now you have to upgrade every year and spend more money and learn new apps and programs because the, the latest and the greatest is always coming out. To make life easier, it, it's made life complicated. And we, we get caught up in all of these things in life. And can you hear God looking down? with us and just kind of getting face to face with us and saying, what are you doing? No, really. <laughs> what are you doing? You, you ever think about that? Do You ever stop and, and imagine how you would answer God? What are you doing with your time? And, and, and what are you doing with your time is a good way to ask, what are you doing with your life? Think about it for a moment. What will your life be when it comes to Uh, its conclusion, it will be nothing but the sum total of what you have done with your time, with your days, with your hours, with your minutes. And I believe God looks at the church. As a matter of fact, I think we see this recorded in Revelation 2 and 3 when Jesus confronts the seven churches there of Asia Minor with this um, uh, revelation that we have. But he kind of deals with where they are in the present before he goes to the future. And he goes, if we could sum it up, he's saying, what are you doing? And it's not that God is trying to figure out what we're doing. He already knows. He knows what we're doing and what we're not doing because I've discovered in the Christian life, at least my struggle is often more the sins of omission rather than sins of commission. Sins of commission are those sins that we commit, those things that we do that are wrong, that we know they're wrong. Sins of omission is when we leave out what God has called us to do. Some have said that the great commission could be called the great omission because of so few churches and Christians actually engaged in what Jesus commanded us to do. Our mission as a church, we try to articulate it so that people can summarize what we believe our biblical mission and and, and our core values as a church drive us toward. And it simply states it this way. We are to lead... People and we, For people, we say we lead families, our neighborhoods, our community, and our world to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ. That's easy to remember. We need to lead people to know Him, to love Him, and to serve Him. And if we're doing that, we're fulfilling the Great Commission. Last week, Easter Sunday, we talked about the greatest news the world has ever heard. How many of you noticed that Easter messages or clips of Easter messages or people who were dressed up to do Easter activities just kind of blew up on Facebook last week? Whatever social media outlet that that you observe, I mean, Easter stuff was everywhere. And the message that Christ is alive was promoted all over the place. But again, every Sunday is Resurrection Day. Every day of our life is a day to be fully devoted to the call of Christ on our lives. And why is it that we need one day out of the year to kind of get worked up about it? Why why isn't it something that consistently drives us? Jesus is alive and he's made all the difference in my life. And not just the testimonies we showed on video, but our church is full of testimonies of how Christ has changed Your life, the the risen and resurrected Lord has changed your life, and you are all, all of you that have come to faith in him are all called to be on mission with him. He says, Lo, I am with you always, by the way, as you're doing the Great Commission, and for him, giving him the glory. So we have more to live for. Those who know him, those who love him, those who serve him, when we hear that voice from heaven what are you doing? We should be able to respond and say, listen, let me tell you what I'm doing. Because I have more to live for now than I ever had. And I would argue that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there's just not much to live for. And I can understand why our world is in despair. People are experiencing all kinds of struggles and frustrations and in, in dealing with hopelessness and meaninglessness because they don't have anything to live for. But if we believe in Christ, we believe in the resurrection, we have something to live for. What is it? How do we lay it out? Describe it. Well, we know that. Right here in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus had a divine appointment for these disciples. Not only that, we are also look this morning and see that He give, gives them the divine authority that He is. Received, and then he gives them a divine assignment. Somebody asks you, what's your life all about? What are you doing? And and then after some answers that we might call pat answers that you had to kind of make up, trivial things, you think a little bit deeper and say, really? What am I doing with my life? Let's look at the divine appointment. You see, the divine appointment here is for our enrichment. Jesus had appointed a place. It says the eleven disciples, in verse 16, traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. This had been an appointed place. Some translations say Jesus had appointed this place to meet with them. Verse 10 Describes that appointment back a few verses earlier. Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. He had given them an appointment and said, I want you to come together. We're going to get together and we're going to, in this appointment, there's going to be some things that are taking place. Now, that's the context for the Great Commission. When they saw him, verse 17, they worshiped. So, worship is taking place. And then later we get these words that we call the Great Commission, in many translations here, written in red, of what Jesus spoke to them. So a place of gathering together in the presence of the living Lord for worship and instruction. This was a divine appointment. That's what the Lord's Day is still about today. For the body of Christ, Christ's followers, to gather together with other believers, to experience worship, they worshiped Him, and they received instruction From the Lord Himself. And every time we open the Word of God together, we're receiving instruction together from the Lord Himself. Now, I don't want us to neglect the importance of a devotional life. Worship is more than just what we do when we gather together corporately as the body of Christ. It should be something that your life is characterized by. Living your life to the glory of God is an act of worship. And there should be moments of private, personal worship every day in your life where you get along with God, you're aware of His presence and His work in your life, and He sets your soul on fire for His glory. That has got to be taking place on a regular basis, but it's no substitute for corporate worship. Coming together as the body of Christ as believers is very vital. Jesus, again, He rose on a Sunday. He meets with them on a Sunday. He changed these... Christ followers' very lives as they were in His presence. It says that some doubted. That just reminds me that we can be real when we come into God's presence. We can bring our doubts. We can bring our fears. We can bring our frustrations. When we come into corporate worship, we don't have to wear a mask and pretend that we're somebody we're not. We don't have to act like we've got it all together. Indeed, I know that there are folks from time to time that don't feel like gathering together with a body of believers because they feel like... Everybody else down at the church has it all together. Let me be clear. If, if you might be tempted to think that this morning, <laughs> the reason we're here tonight is because uh, this morning <laughs> is because we don't have all the answers. The reason we gathered in this place is because we're seeking answers. We're struggling with doubts. We're struggling with frustrations. But in the midst of that struggle, when we come together as the body of Christ, we're told that if two or more gathered in his name, he's right there in the midst. He's revealing himself. Christ is alive in our presence. Hebrews 10.25 says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some were in the habit of doing. He says, don't forsake that because when you come together, you're going to stir one another up for love and good works. And there's encouragement and edification and Christian community, family life With those who are blood kin through the blood of Jesus Christ and so we're not to forsake that assembling of ourselves together in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4 Jesus made an appointment for the church he told them I want you to wait there you you hang out in that upper room in Jerusalem and you're going to be endued with power Acts chapter 2 Jesus through his Holy Spirit shows up for the appointment says they had been praying and they had been waiting and Christ showed up and did something remarkable they didn't want to miss it How many times do we take lightly our neglect of corporate worship, gathering together? We talk about the CEOs, but the the truth of the matter is as we look at the statistics, it's getting harder and harder to judge how many people are active in church because they define active differently than they used to. Active at one time meant like, you know, 90% of the time, 90% of the Sundays, you were going to be in the Lord's house on worship. And, you know, because you, know, you think about school, to get an A, usually you have to make a 90, so I want to be that kind of A-plus student when it comes to my worship attendance. And some of you even remember when in Sunday school you got perfect attendance pins because 52 Sundays out of the year you were in Sunday school. Now that's almost unheard of today. And Then, you know, life is busy and, and more and more places are open for business on Sundays and Lord's Day and all of that, and we kind of pull back. But today, you know what? People are... Defining being actively involved in a local church one Sunday a month. One Sunday a month. Listen, I'm the pastor of the church. I know how to feed myself spiritually, but I can't get by with that. If I'm not around the people of God and in the Word of God together with, with, with the family of God, then I miss out on the encouragement that I need. I, I remember during, during my teenage years, and I, and I wasn't as consistent in the Word of God as I needed to be. I was trying to grow in that but, but after Sunday, I couldn't wait till Wednesday night to get back to youth group because my tank was about empty and I wanted to be filled back up. I couldn't wait to get back on Sunday morning. Now again, I know the importance of feeding and fueling ourselves in our own personal quiet time. But body life, that, that gathering together in the presence of the living Lord on a regular basis is consistently promoted not only in, in this text but throughout the rest of the New Testament. Notice there were 11 here. It says the eleven. Who are we missing? Somebody help me out. Who are we missing? Judas. Judas sold Jesus out. Judas wasn't around. Judas made some devastating decisions. He's going to miss out. He's going to miss out on what God is going to do through the lives of these disciples who become apostles and make a difference in the world. God wants to do something in you. He wants to do something through you. Don't miss gathering together with the body of believers because we don't know when God is going to show up in a mighty and powerful way and do something in your life and through you that He will use you to change the world for His glory. They they met at this appointed place and at an appointed time. Others doubted. We may struggle. We may deal with doubts. But let's show up and see if God answers those doubts. Don't be that that coal that gets away from the fire. Let the Spirit of God fan you into flame again. Pull you back to the fire and the people of God and what God is doing in body life. It's often others that, that fan my fires into flame. This semester... I was asked to, uh, some of you know, I, I often teach a, a Bible class every semester at, at Emmanuel College, and this semester I was asked to teach a preaching class. And I thought, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I know enough to teach a preaching class, but because uh, a professor was, that actually taught me many years ago was on sabbatical, I'm, I'm kind of filling in for this one class. And, and so I, I thought, Lord, I don't know if I can teach these guys anything. I still don't know if I've taught them anything, but I know this. Just being around people who want to preach and teach the Word of God lights a fire in me. When you get around people that are passionate about doing what you're passionate about doing, if your passion begins to fade, that passion is reignited. And that's why we can't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We've got to meet the living Lord at that appointed place so that our lives might be enriched for His glory. So we gather here to be enriched for what God is wanting to do in our lives. Don't be a CEO Christian. (laughs) We were made for a community of faith. That community of faith is called the church. Jesus said, on this church, or on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have all kinds of excuses. So busy. We're so tired. And we are busy and tired. We need to be spiritually renewed and refreshed by the body of Christ. Oh, but we need some family time. Listen, I am all about family time, and I want you to make that a top priority in your life. But family time is often us doing things together, right? I know of nothing greater to do together as a family than to be in a place of worship with your family, worshiping God. Don't neglect that. There's a divine appointment. They were gathered together. The Great Commission is given in a context And if you take it out of that context, it's a little more difficult to embrace, but it was given in the context of believers gathered in the presence of the living Lord who had just died for their sins, rose from the grave, gave an appointment, and is now gathered in their presence. Secondly, I want you to see not only the divine appointment, I want you to see the divine authority. This is not only for our enrichment, this is for our empowerment. What does he say here in verse 18? Jesus came near He's being very personal, very conversational. He says, I want you to know something. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'm in charge now. Now listen, it's not like God has not always been omnipotent. He has. God has always been in control. But remember what Jesus said when he was talking in Matthew chapter 16 about building the church on that rock, and he says, I'm going to give you the keys through the kingdom. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He did, as, as Pastor Ben mentioned a moment ago in his prayer, defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. And, and everything that mankind through Adam had kind of handed over to the enemy, Jesus said, I'm taking that back. And I'm going to advance my kingdom through my people. He had all the right The authority. Sometimes the word power is is translated authority, and sometimes it's translated ability. Jesus had both the authority and the ability to take charge. During the American Revolution, there are 4,435 soldiers' deaths that were recorded. Many say that a lot more than that actually gave their lives for this to become a free nation. Four thousand four hundred thirty-four, thirty-five soldiers died. Can you imagine the surrender at Yorktown? General Washington, who would become President Washington, is kind of overseeing things. Can you imagine him just kind of speaking 20th or 21st century language and just, just putting it this way, "Say we'll take it from here. We'll take it from here. You see, we have plans for this great nation. We fought. Nearly 5,000 soldiers gave their lives for this nation. We'll take it from here. Well, there were still a lot of questions, but listen, when Jesus Christ, the only one who could die for our sins, the only one whose death, whose cross, could could defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave forever and ever, the only one who could accomplish that, and the only one who has ever been raised from the dead to never die again, is saying, I'll take it from here. I'm in charge now. Some of you in the back of your mind are hearing the old westerns. <laughs> There's a new sheriff in town. Jesus has taken charge, and it's that authority that he's passing on to his disciples. The enemy was defeated. Jesus has all power. But his plans for the world involves his church. Say, so how do we access that, that power, the The authority and the ability. Jesus, listen, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, uh, Acts is like volume 2 of Luke. Luke's gospel kind of ends and overlaps at the end of Luke's gospel with the beginning of Acts. And so he's still building his case for the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1. And he's speaking with his disciples and his followers, and he he says to them, you're going to receive power the ability, and the authority, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, a lot of us have heard somebody translate that word power before and explain to us in Acts 1, eight that the word for power is dunamis, and in the, that the, we get our word dynamite from dunamis. And so we think, man, I'm going to live an explosive, we, dunamis, boom, power, dynamite, I'm going to live a dynamite, powerful life. The only problem with that dynamite imagery is that dynamite had not been invented at the time that the Greek New Testament was written. It's not talking about explosive power. We have a lot of Christians who, who blow in, blow up, and blow out. They have their moments of dynamite, but they don't have their moments of consistency. Living a life with the authority and the ability that Christ extended through the Holy Spirit. Let's think about the second part of Acts 1:8. He says, "You will receive power, the ability and the authority when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my help me out. Be my what? Witnesses. You will be my witnesses." So, one test of the Spirit-filled life, we're told that in Galatians chapter 5, we're told the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we're walking in the Spirit, then the character of Christ is manifest in us. We act a little more like Jesus the more we get filled with the Spirit of God. But that's not the only purpose for the Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall do all kinds of crazy, strange things in your worship service as a result of that. Is that what it, no, it doesn't say that. It says you will be my witnesses. And evidence for the Spirit-filled life in you and in me is are we sharing our faith with others. We've been given the ability and the authority through the Holy Spirit to share our faith with others. Divine authority is for our empowerment. Jesus is in charge now. Not enough to be enriched, you need to be empowered. Listen to Acts 4.31. It says, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Again, evidence of the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak the word of God. They began to speak the gospel with boldness and courage. Some of you are like, Pastor, I'm just a quiet person. I can't share my faith. That's a great place to be because I've been there. And here's what I've discovered. You, you say, I can't share my faith because I'm just way too quiet. That's not the way God made me. I'm not one of those people. You know, Some people just have the gift of gab. They're the kind of you know, people walk into a, a party mouth first, man. They're the one, they're the life of the party. They're the talkers and every man, I wish I was gifted like that. If you're one this morning who says, I'm the quiet type, I'm an introvert, I'm not that outgoing, praise God for that because that means that you are much less likely to attempt to do these things in the flesh. Because you just don't have it in the flesh you will depend fully on the Spirit of God to empower and enable you to speak the Gospel. So ask God for that empowerment. And if you are outgoing, outspoken, you've got the gift of gab, then ask God that He might direct it for His glory and use you as a spokesman to point people to Him. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit so that the character of Christ and the words of the Gospel will flow from you. It empowers us to walk it and empowers us to talk it. It's been said before, your walk gives credibility to your talk, but your talk gives clarity to your walk. You ever heard anybody say, well, Don't talk the talk if you can't walk the walk. It's a great statement because your walk gives credibility to your talk. But the problem is if we're walking it and not talking it, we're not fully walking it because part of walking it is being obedient to Christ who told us to talk it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And how will they hear unless somebody goes and tells them? Romans 10 says. So if we're not talking it, we're not fully walking it. So your walk gives clarity your walk gives credibility to your talk, but your talk gives clarity to your walk. We don't, there are so many eccentric people, so many different personalities in the world today, and nobody's running up to you saying, man, tell me what Jesus did for you. You've got to initiate the conversation. That takes us to our last point, the divine assignment. This is for our employment. God's divine assignment in verses 19 and 20. What is it we're supposed to be about as a church? What are you supposed to be about as a Christian? He says, go therefore and make disciples. He tells us to go. We call it our employment. It might be our deployment. We're deployed to make disciples. What he's saying is, as you are going out into this world, make disciples. Change your world. What is a disciple? Disciple the Greek word for disciple, methetes, we get our word math, which I don't like, but it really just means being a student, being a learner. And in that Greek culture at that time, in the Roman world, it was to be a follower, a student who learned by following, walking with their master, walking with their teacher. They would learn by not only what they said, but what they did. They were disciples. And he tells us not to go out into the world and make converts, Get as many people as you can to say that they believe in Jesus Christ. He says, go and make disciples. In other words, for them to truly become believers in Jesus Christ, it's got to be a life of being a learner and a follower where they're walking with Jesus and picking up His pattern of life. It's back to our mission as a church, to lead people to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ. You're not going to serve Him if you don't love Him. And you can't love Him if you don't know Him. So we've got to be together and and, and in the Word of God, growing in in the grace of God. Because if we know Him, if we truly know Him, we'll love Him. If we love Him, we'll serve Him. Well, what's the method here? How how does He say do this, make disciples? Well, He says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them. Baptism is a picture of their conversion. Baptism is a picture of... Uh, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the fact that when we come to faith in Christ, we identify with Him. It's our identification and our assimilation. We identify with Christ, we identify with His church through water baptism. That's why throughout the book of Acts and the rest of the epistles, that water baptism was the first step of obedience after someone came to faith in Christ. Remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch? He was saying, listen, why why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip said, "Hey, well, you know, as long as you believe, as long as you put your faith and trust in Christ, there's no reason." They found some water. They walked down into the water, and he baptized this Ethiopian eunuch. Many people believe that he's the one who took the gospel back to northern Africa, and that's why there was such a, an emerging Christian community in northern Africa there in the first century. He says, "Baptizing them, get them to identify." First, it's got to be inward, but get them to identify with Christ through water baptism. Identify with Christ, assimilated into the body of Christ, known as the church. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you can remember it this way, the Father thought it. It was in the mind and the heart of God. The Son bought it. He died on the cross. The Holy Spirit wrought it. He's the one that convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the Father thought it, the Son bought it, the Holy Spirit wrought it, and were to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then that's it, right? It stops at verse 19. Let's just stop right there. Again, that's where a lot of us fall short. That's where a lot of churches fall short. Man, get them in. Get them saved. Get them baptized. Now they're on our team. Next up. And that's why the back door of many churches is just as big as the front door, and we all struggle with it. Get them in, get them saved, and they're right out the back door. He said, "Make disciples. Discipleship is a process of spiritual growth, continuing to grow in our knowledge." Second Peter three seventeen or three eighteen: Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we're to continue to grow in our knowledge of Him, our knowledge of the Word of God, our love for Christ, and our service for Christ. Baptizing them and then what? Teaching them. Teaching them to observe all all things or everything I've commanded you. What you've got to keep in mind here is this gospel is inspired of the Holy Spirit, but God doesn't bypass the the heart, mind, and personality of the author, Matthew. And and so if we ask ourselves, what might Matthew have been thinking about those things? Perhaps Matthew recalls what he wrote in chapters 9 and 10. The ministry Jesus had of touching lives that led to Matthew himself coming to faith in Christ. That chapter 9 where it ends, pray the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers to go out into the harvest. Maybe that's what Matthew was thinking. Those things I've commanded you. Let's be about his ministry. Let's be about touching lives. Matthew chapter 16 might come to mind. Now, Matthew had not numbered these, but perhaps he's thinking about what he wrote when he wrote about Christ building his church, building his kingdom on the rock Jesus himself. Maybe he thought about chapters 18 through 20, where Jesus says, listen, if you're going to be a part of the kingdom, here's how marriage works. Here's here's how you need to treat kids. Here's the love you need to have for children. Here's what a family of God looks like. And so making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them how to live out the Christian faith in their home, in their church, in their community, and in their world. Maybe chapter 24 comes to mind. The end of the age, prepare them for what's coming one day. Teaching so that they may be consecrated and equipped. It's my responsibility of, as a pastor, Ephesians 4.11. God say, gave some to be apostles, prophets. Evangelists, and then that next gift there is pastor teachers. And he gave the pastor, he gave churches, the pastor teachers, Ephesians 4 says, to do all the church work, right? No, he says to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry until they come to a place of spiritual maturity. That's the responsibility of a pastor. Now, he's got to model that. He can't ask people to do what he's not willing, invisibly doing. But it's for the equipping of the saints. the work of the ministry, that they might discover their spiritual gifts, that they might be employed in God's work. What does it look like? You know, we have a list of core values as a church. If Trinity is being effective at making disciples, then our core value is going to tell us a little bit about what that might look like. Some values are more aspirational than actual sometimes meaning we, we, want, we want to be there, we have a vision for that, but we've got some work to do in some of these areas. All of us could say in our personal lives, we've got work to do in these areas. The first one is we're committed to biblical authority and doctrinal integrity. That means we're understanding the Word of God. We saw in our life group this morning that there are books of the Bible like Ephesians and Colossians where the first half of the book is given to doctrine, the second half to practice because we're to... Uh, our practices is to, to bring balance out to our doctrine. We've got to know what we believe before we know what to put into practice. We're committed, secondly, to enthusiastic worship and celebration. So a disciple of Christ is somebody who's going to be in the Word of God, but also in the worship of God. We're committed to prayer. Are we learning to pray on a regular basis, not just corporately, but is, is prayer something that governs our lives? Ministry to the whole family. See, discipleship doesn't just take place on a Sunday morning and Wednesday night. Discipleship takes place. As I shared, I was asked to serve on a panel this week to talk about disciple-making in the church. And I felt like kind of the odd man out. There were four of us there on this panel. Three were talking about one particular ministry that was a discipleship ministry of their church. And I was kind of confused, and I said, Listen, we don't have just one ministry that's about making disciples Everything we do is about making disciples. If everything that we do, if there's anything involved in our church program that's not about making disciples, it doesn't need to be part of our church programming. But in everything we do, it's to teach people to know, love, and serve God. Even those times we get together for fellowship is to enrich a community of disciples that we might be stronger together than we are, part of a better community of disciples. So ministry to the whole family. We want to equip families for discipleship to even take place in the home. The biggest test for me as a disciple-making pastor may not be how you live your lives, but how my family lives out their faith. Small group ministry. We're committed to small group ministry. Life groups, Wednesday nights, all of that. It's about making disciples. Evangelism and mission. See, if we can get everybody to be a part of of an international mission trip, that's a great thing, and that's our goal is at least... One thing that we recently started, we've said every kid that goes through high school we want to have, have at least one opportunity to go on an international mission trip. Biblical stewardship. See a disciple of Christ is faithful with their time, their talents, their financial resources to invest time, talents, and resources into the kingdom of God. So are we learning to tithe and, and give toward the kingdom? Making disciples. So if Jesus asks, what are you doing? What are you doing? Can you honestly say, you know what? I'm committed to the King and His kingdom. I'm making disciples. Oh, There are a lot of shapes and forms that takes, but I'm making disciples. This morning as I was on my way to worship, Jeff texted me a song he was listening to on the radio and he said, hey, listen to this song. He told me what station it was on. And uh, we like to do stuff like that when we hear a good song. Usually it's me saying, Jeff, you need to learn this song. We've got to do it in worship. <laughs> uh, so Jeff's going to come and sing that song. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do it to him right now. Um, he, he, he shared this song, and I missed the first half of the song, so I looked it up when I got here this morning. And I thought, wow, man, God's trying to say what he's saying to me through this text, what I hope that he's saying through me to you this morning. This song just kind of nailed it. It's a song by Sanctus Real, and it's, uh, it's just called "On Fire." I think the name of it's "On Fire." Let's listen to these lyrics, and maybe maybe uh, we'll get Jeff to sing the song to us later. It Says, "Remember when you could?" Uh, s- s- sorry, remember when you couldn't wait to show up early and find your place because you didn't want to miss a thing, and your heart was open and ready for change. All <laughs> oh, those days. You were never afraid to sing, never afraid to lift your hands. Didn't care what people would think. You were on fire. And church was more than a place and people were more than faces and Jesus was more than a name. Remember when you weren't ashamed to tell your friends about your faith? (laughs) A time when you felt the pain of just one lost soul that was slipping away. Your heart was soft, you had radiant eyes, but slowly the pressures and burdens of life pulled you into the dark of the night. But when did you lose your sight? You were on fire. Church was more than a place. And people were more than faces. And Jesus was more than a name. Isn't that good? You remember a time that you were more in love with Jesus Christ? More filled with His Spirit, felt the urgency of getting the message to your friends and family more than you do today. Remember that time? Maybe you want to ask Him to rekindle that fire today. Would you bow your heads with me?